Hey everybody, I am excited to chat with Robbie Allen. He is a senior product manager at Intercom. And you know, if you've read any articles about onboarding or jobs to be done on Intercom, chances are he wrote it. <laughs> he wrote that article. How's it going, Robbie? How are things? Hey, it's great to be with you. Yeah, I'm super excited to, to jump on this. I've actually been researching a lot about onboarding and your article keeps coming up. I've seen your presentation. Before we talk about that, I just want to warm things up. I, I ask you, what do you do for fun? You said you fly planes. And I'm like, you, I can't start off a conversation with you without mentioning you fly a plane. How, how long have you been flying? Like, where's your favorite destination you flew to? Yeah, so... When I was in New York, some friends and I um, had a business a few years ago, and one of our clients took us up flying. He he was a pilot, and he was sort of like a fairly quiet IT guy, but turns out he'd been an amazing pilot, like he'd flown for Red, for Red Bull. And I just didn't know that was a thing that people could do. Like, you know, when I grew up, like, you know, my parents didn't you know, know anyone that flew, and I just assumed it was either extremely hard or extremely expensive or both. And it's not to say it's either cheap or easy. But it's definitely a thing that you can do. And it's a fun blend of, you know, really learning new skills. There's a whole lot of kind of systems and aerodynamics that you need to know to be able to fly what is a fairly complex piece of equipment. But also, it's just really, really enjoyable. So, you know, doing a big steep turn around the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco um, or sort of flying low over Alcatraz, it's just stunningly beautiful. And so it's a lovely, lovely thing to be able to do, a lovely personal challenge. And just an awesome thing to be able to share with friends. Really fascinating. That was so. I, we were just chatting earlier about like you know what I wanted to be when I was a teenager. One of them was a astronaut. If people are watching this mm-hmm. video, you were a NASA shirt. The other one was a pilot. So like, I didn't know like how expensive was it to start to fly to learn how to fly and like how long did it take? Yeah. So like, it varies by where you are oh. and how long it takes you personally. So the best way to learn to fly would be to say, take a month off or a couple of months off or work part-time for a couple of months and just sort of, you know, essentially fly every day. It's the opposite of riding a bicycle. Um, yeah, it's not that you, you know, like a bicycle, you never sort of forget flying. Like if you haven't flown in a while, um, the skill atrophies quite a lot. And the way that most people learn, you know, if you're not going to be a commercial pilot, typically is, a little bit like golf lessons. You just hire someone and they teach you until you're good enough to take a you know kind of test and, and get through. Cost to do this kind of depends on um, how long it takes, but it's not super cheap, probably 10 to 20 grand um, to get through the whole sort of exercise between instructing and sort of flight time. But uh, yeah, if, you, if you're smart about it, you can get through it pretty quickly. I was not smart about it and it, it took me quite a long time. I did it over 18 months. I was working at the time and then... I was working close to the airport, then moved away, you know, changed jobs, moved to Intercom, which is not close to the airport, which, you know, definitely took a lot of my focus away. And, you know, flying in the San Francisco Bay Area as well as some of the most complex airspace mm. in the world. You've got, you know, San Francisco International right beside Oakland and all mm. these hills and there's like quite a lot going on. And so, you know, that just takes much longer to learn than if you're learning in a sort of cornfield in Kansas where there's not a lot of other stuff to kind of run into. So really fascinating. Yeah, let's talk about that. You you talked about like you started working at uh, Intercom. How long have you been working there, and how did you get started and get that role as a product manager at Intercom? Yeah, so I've been at Intercom just over three years. We do a, a sort of a celebration of the um, anniversary you know, that you join, like many uh, companies do. And at Intercom, we kind of post these comics. They have a comic artist make a kind of comic, or now a card 
um, of you. And so just got mine for for year three. The way I came to Intercom actually was it was um, it was through a headhunter that reached out, like you know, like many folks with sort of LinkedIn. You get a fair amount of inbound and um, ignore most of it. I was pretty happy working at SurveyMonkey. Had really enjoyed working with the mobile team. And you know, when I saw the name Intercom in my inbox, I thought, yeah, like I really admire that company. I think it's really interesting what they're doing. I'd read a lot of the kind of writing and work that sort of Paul and Des had written, and really believed they were onto something about how they built product. And you know, through my interviews, found that this really seemed to be true. That they 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 really had a, a world class product organization. And so I was, I was really eager to kind of apprentice myself to those folks and um, you know jump into a company that at the time was a little bit smaller than SurveyMonkey. So mm. made sense to make the jump. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that Intercom is used for is for onboarding. And the reason why I'm talking about that is like I've, when I Google your name, <laughs> look for articles, podcasts, blog posts, most of it, I think almost all of it is all about onboarding, user onboarding. I'm curious why, you know, that's been your, you know, that's what you've been writing and talking a lot about. Why is that user onboarding so important for companies to really take a look at? So I think onboarding is a really interesting part of the user lifecycle. So, you know, you've gone to all the effort of getting the person to your website. You've built this amazing marketing website that sort of convinces this person that your product's going to help them. And then... You know, so many companies will then be surprised that once that you know, new user gets into their product, they don't actually stick around. And an analogy that I find kind of really compelling is, is this idea of like a gym or a fitness studio. Mm-hmm. You know, like people coming to your product are like people that are you know going to the gym. They just want to like look better naked or feel a bit better or something like that. And they're like, okay, cool. I'm in for this. Here's my money. Let's go. And you get through the doors and you're sort of, assaulted by this like room with music a bunch of dudes dropping weights it kind of smells bad there's a lot of heavy stuff and confusing equipment and you're like i just want to like you know not be puffing going up the stairs or be a bit sort of sexier in the bedroom like like what you know what's going on and, and you know fitness studios uniquely do like a you know generally or typically have done a pretty bad job of like kind of missing those two things together and i think it's the case for many digital products right we spend so much kind of time and effort like kind of getting these customers uh, in the door, but like it seems a common blind spot that we fall over once we've got these customers to sort of sign up or maybe, you know, start a trial or give us that, you know, sort of first month of payment. And then once we get into the product, yeah, there's just not the right experience to bridge that. I think the other reason that I find it really interesting is that it's a little bit different. So if you think of, you know, a lot of organizations have product teams that spend all their time kind of thinking about, existing customers and building new features and thinking really hard. But the new user is kind of a little different, right? Because your kind of core PM sh- should be talking to like power users and, you know, likely your company's growing. It's probably going up market. It, you know, the product's getting more sophisticated. And so they're talking with people that are at the frontier of how they use your product. They already know it. They sort of get your jargon. They figured out the kind of mental model of how the product works. And onboarding is totally different. You've got to kind of explain to someone that's, you know, it's like explaining to your mother or sort of someone on the street, someone that's brand new, you know, like how do you get them across the line to sort of understand your product and how it works? And also how do you explain enough in a short space of time to get them going, right? Because you probably, you know, probably don't want to, as an introduction to a gym, you know, give someone a six-week course on like the, you know, biomechanics of bodybuilding, right? You sort of like get them in there, 
get them moving around, sweaty, feeling good and coming back and sort of slowly building that. So it's quite a subtle and, you know, quite a complex thing that we're trying to do in onboarding. And I just, you know, sort of found it really captured my imagination. And, you know, it's an important and valuable part of the product experience and one that I think that, you know, a lot of products just don't get very right. Yeah, you're right. Like it doesn't, a lot of products doesn't get it right. Like I've compared it to sometimes as the ugly duckling of growth, where it's like often ignored. <laughs> you got the marketing team trying to acquire users. You got the product team trying to build, mm. you know, new features. And maybe you do have some insight about this, about why do most products or companies get this piece wrong? Or is it just because lack of time, lack of focus, lack of directive? Why is it, why do most products get it wrong? I think that the org chart is probably responsible mm. for a lot of this stuff. So as I mentioned before, and as you sort of alluded to, typically it's that you know the marketing website will be owned by the marketing mm. team. And then once someone's signed up, like that's someone else that's kind of like the product team or sort of something like that. And again, your product team typically will be sort of organized around, you know, kind of core parts of the product or core sort of functionality. You know, if your product has like sort of three main functions, you know, you might have teams that are organized around that. And naturally they'll gravitate to, you know, the most sophisticated users because they're trying to think about their, you know, those users' needs and how do we extend the product and, you know, kind of create more value as they should. I think it's extremely hard. Like a lot of companies would say, hey, look, each team, each sort of, you know, kind of organization should be responsible for their own onboarding. But there's kind of two problems with that. One is that I think it's extremely tough for someone to be, you know, both an expert and like highly capable, you know, kind of users that are really pushing the bounds of your product and then be able to kind of like bring their brain back to like back in the day where they didn't know how all the functionality worked and, and like kind of think from that. But the second piece is that there's a, a need for a coordinating mm. function to say, well, you know, each team that launches um, a new feature, let's say you've got an onboarding flow, of course, like they want to move their metrics. So let's just put this thing in the onboarding flow. And you know, it can often be sort of a dumping ground or like, you know, face a tragedy of the commons problem where so much stuff just gets put into this experience because each team is just trying to move their metrics. And, you know, when all the focus is on this product launch, it sort of makes sense to do that maybe, or it might seem to make sense. But really when someone's brand new, it's like, whoa, 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 this is just too much, too fast. We should be focused on what that person wants and, and, and like they should come later on. And, you know, who has the ability and the role to sort of have that conversation say look this is just you know kind of too much because again the sort of marginal feature you're making probably is like less important because if it was so important you probably would have you know launched with that feature right to get your company to where you are i think the other piece is that it's to the org chart sort of side of things often you know onboarding can be owned by like a pmm team or sort of something like that and i think that a or a customer engagement team and what I think you need to onboard successfully is a really sort of customer problem type focused mindset, um, which certainly people in marketing you know, can do and the most successful teams kind of will bring to it. But it's almost like you need to bring, you know, like a really product mindset to like what is typically a marketing type task. It's like an, an, an explanation job. You know, you're not building new features. You're building features that like help someone connect with or use the existing product. So it's like a slight sort of twist. It's not sort of standard product work. It's not standard marketing work. And I think sometimes it just falls in the cracks for that reason. You've talked a lot about the org. I think that's, you know, when people talk about improving onboarding, they jump into, you know, product tours and this and that and emails. But like, I think you're right. Like the pieces about the org and how it's structured can, can often like pull that piece away. 
what is your suggestion then for teams that that's where it's happening? Do you suggest they build like a cross-functional team or like you talked about like the customer engagement focus thing? Like what is your suggestion to, hey, you should look at improving your onboarding. How can they like kind of start with the org in mind first or a team in mind first before even jumping into like tactics? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, like the simple answer is, they just make one team responsible for it. When I joined Intercom, we, you know, one of the most striking things to us and even to myself is we just mapped out like what are all the touch points in the customer experience and who owns all of those things. And there were like eight or nine teams that, you know, together and not really talking to each other were contributing to the experience because you think there's like often new customers will talk to our CS teams. They may be reached out to by sales and like marketing will have done the website and there's a demand gen team that's, you know, sort of creating ads and customer engagement, sending emails and different product teams, creating experiences. There's a whole lot of sort of people. And, you know, what you really want is like, you know, a coordinated, coherent experience and having one team own that. You know, typically is going to you know deliver you the best results and so that's where we've got to actually we have we're now in a position where you know the team that owns on, um, onboarding kind of rolls up and we have like you know one organization that's all talking to each other that that's responsible sort of for that first use experience but i think it's sort of worth pointing out that it's all org charts have problems right like there's no sort of perfect like you know there's sort of no perfect organization and i think it's worth asking the question is this the most important problem for your company right now? You know, there's the idea in startups of like, you know, letting the right fires burn, like everything's going to be a little bit broken. And, um, you know, sometimes it is okay. Like, you know, onboarding is good enough and we'd rather the teams, you know, get the benefit of the focus from the way they're currently organized rather than sort of reorganizing to advantage um, onboarding. And I think, you know, as a company, we've had times where we were more focused on onboarding and less focused on onboarding. And I think that, that that sort of waxing, waning, you know, it gets bad, you fix it, it gets bad, you fix it, is sort of the natural order of things. I don't think there's a kind of a way that you can naturally, you know, sort of make it perfect all the time. It's really fascinating. I get this question a lot. Who should own onboarding? <laughs> like in Frontecom, who owns it? And, you know, for other companies, should that be the rule of thumb? Or like, what would you suggest to companies about like who should own onboarding? I mean, I think the answer is it depends. And I think the people that own it should be the people that most familiar with the most important lever to pull, right? So, you know, if you're a largely sales-led business, then, you know, maybe it's like a you know, customer success type team, right, that, that are responsible for this. If you're a, you know, product where, you know, maybe the customer isn't, you know, kind of logging in all the time, you know, that they come back and forth, you know, someone that's really familiar with email, likely a kind of a customer engagement or a kind of lifecycle marketing type team, probably the people that own it. You know, for us, Intercom's a way that, you know, businesses talk to their customers and, you know, people that use Intercom spend a lot of time, like, in our sort of web app. So it makes a lot of sense for a product team to kind of own that experience. And that's, you know, the way we've structured it. At the moment, the way we've structured actually is we have a, a product director who reports into our marketing team so we have this sort of like hybrid sort of product marketing structure that, um, you know, allows the marketing team to sort of have the oversight over this experience, but brings the product thinking. And, you know, we have R&D teams with sort of products and designers and engineers that work within that. Now, that's the way it works for us now. And I think that's actually a really nice structure. But I think the right answer will be dependent on the sort of skills and abilities and the relative interests in your organization. 
it's really fascinating how it's structured at Intercom because one of the things that I find just talking to other companies is that usually it's, you know, when somebody owns it, like let's say the product, they don't talk to the other teams. Like they don't talk to the marketing team, which, you know, the value proposition, copy and emails are where, where that stays. So like having this hybrid approach kind of helps make sure that onboarding doesn't become siloed in product. Is that what you find or is that like a problem that you see in other companies where you know, the team that owns it ends up like becoming the solo protective of that experience that they don't even involve the other teams that might have touch points in that particular uh, section. Yeah, a thousand percent. Like, you know, we're all guilty of this, that I look at a lot of problems and sort of see product problems beneath them. Marketers look at a lot of situations and see marketing problems in them. Mm. If you're an email marketing team, you know, the answer to any problem is probably going to be more emails. I want to change UI and, and, and sort of customer experiences. Like that's just the way we're sort of wired. And, um, you know, so trying to, at the outset, you know, like kind of get executive buy-in for this like cross-functional group that's going to work together. And I think, you know, getting that group to like truly work together and and so say, hey, like we are together going to build this experience. And so the product team's going to offer sort of thoughts and feedback on the email experience and, and the, you know, kind of customer engagement team should be offering kind of, you know, their thoughts and, you know, I feel that they're very welcome on the table and, and, you know, sort of creating user experiences. And if you have that shared kind of ownership across those experiences, then you get to build a very seamless kind of experience versus like, ah, oh, we're going to work together, by which we mean, we mean we're both going to kind of go away, think about what we think the good experience is and build it and then find that, you know, like they just completely diverge and talk about different things. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I want to shift gears and talk about something that you write about in terms of onboarding is jobs to be done. And relating it back to your analogy with the gym, you talked about how people sign up for the gym not to like, hey, I'm going to do some bicep curls. It's more so that they, you said you want to look good naked, right? So can you talk a little bit about like how jobs to be done can framework can actually improve user onboarding? Yeah, so I think... In the gym example, like I mentioned, that the, you know the reason people go to the gym, right? Whether it's looking better naked or it's feeling better, mm-hmm. kind of going up the stairs, or you know maybe it's community in some cases, like certain sort of forms of exercise are really about community. And um, understanding that is like absolutely mm-hmm. critical, because if we were to have a discussion about how you build a better gym onboarding program, you know you might say, well, look, you know we'll teach people about the machines. That seems logical. You know we'll show them around the gym. Yeah, it's fair enough because, you know, like your example, like that's how you kind of learn, you know, we'll teach you to do bicep curls and, you know, products are the same. They're like, oh, welcome to our product. Like, here's this feature. Here's that feature. Here's how you can set up one of these. And the reality is like those kind of long, look at this, look at this, look at this experiences don't actually help, right? Like a kind of a tour of, I mean, I'm I'm sure it helps know where the changing rooms are (laughs) in a gym, but just sort of showing someone how a kind of pull down machine works probably isn't sort of super successful. Because that's not what they're there for, as you mentioned. And so if you understand what people are there for, oh, I want to feel better going up the stairs, it helps to orient and focus us around, well, what does a great first-use experience look like? Well, what it should do is give me confidence that like, ah, yes, doing this thing will help me get what I want, right? So in the case of the gym, how do we get people leaving that first session going, yeah, I'm pretty sure if I keep doing this, I'll feel good going up the stairs or like, you know, I can see if I kept doing this, I'm going to look really great, you know? And so, you know, to carry with the gym example, maybe it's like really quickly, someone was able to kind of, you know, get a workout in seems super important. They probably 
you know, ideally they're not sore. They feel that, you know, they got a little bit of sweaty. They sort of feel like they kind of did some work, but they can also feel that that feels really healthy. Like that's what you want people leaving with, right? And so once we've got that, then we could build an onboarding experience, right? We can collaborate on, on like, okay, well, what would it take to create an experience for someone that like, that's what they're going to leave with. And, you know, the analogy for a, um, a software product is going to be very similar. How do we create an experience that makes them really confident that, oh yeah, Intercom's definitely going to help me talk to my customers in like a really personal and effective way. Like that's what I want people to leave their first, you know, sort of session with. And so rather than a tour of like, let's you know show personal features and like, let's get you set up with some JavaScript and we'll or arrange automatic payments. What I should be doing is like, how can I do stuff that makes people go, oh, wow. Oh, this is going to be a personal experience. Oh, wow. This is going to be easy to use. Just like enough that's going to keep me sort of coming back. And so I think that the, you know, the importance of the job is like understanding what it is that we're trying to do, right? Because otherwise I think, you know, if we don't agree up front on like what we want that experience to deliver, if we don't know what the customer wants to do, then like we kind of don't know how to make it better. And kind of are leading to this about uh, motivation, like learning something new and changing habits is is hard. If you've done something, if you're, you've been a couch potato for years, <laughs> trying to get started with going to the gym is going to be hard. And that's the reason why, you know, New Year's coming up. People are going to sign up for gyms. This is like the number greatest experience. This is when most gyms make money and they know they're not going to come back. So they lock them in for a year. And it's because habit, changing habits is hard and just driving this, this, you know, knowing what people want uh, also increases motivation and get them, like you said, get them to keep coming back. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's sort of what you're alluding to there a little bit is some of the, um, there's the really practical reasons or the reasons we say that we want something, mm. but there's also the sort of more subtle reasons, right? And, you know, sort of fears and anxieties. So, you know, in the gym example, it might be, hey, look, I'm kind of scared of looking stupid. Like, I, you know, I want to look proficient and athletic and I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm doing. You know, with a new product, right? It might be, hey, look, this is all great. I want to create a good experience for my customers, but I want to look sort of cutting edge and I want to look competent to my boss. You know, like I want to look like I'm, you know, kind of doing well in this. And so understanding those more sort of subtle motivations and for business products, like I tend to work in, it does tend to be stuff like I want to look, you know, kind of look good to my boss and prove that this has got ROI and like all those kinds of things. They're really important as well. Those sort of more subtle jobs that people have to do in addition to the, you know, the main sort of espoused or you know, sort of seemingly, you know, much more altruistic. Mm. Um, you know, kind of job that's needed. Makes a lot of sense. And it kind of leads to the, the concept of the four progress making forces about the motivation, like the, the push pull, the habits of the past. And I forget the last one, but can you talk a little bit about those, how yeah. that, that those forces are actually in play when, you know, you're getting users to, to do something new that they are, you know, trying to change the way they, they've done things before. Yeah, exactly. So, the concept of, of the four forces sort of leads on from what we were talking about before, where there's sort of like, I, I think of it as a like above the line and below the line. There's sort of, there's a kind of a push and a pull, which is sort of like the things that everyone one would say that are driving them to try the new product, right? What's pushing you? What's the mm. problem, the pain from your existing product that kind of needs to be fixed? And what's the pull? What's the sort of potential upside, the benefit of the sort of new product that's kind of driving you towards it? And, and again, 
as we think about an onboarding experience, like how do I prove really quickly to someone if they're very push-driven product, if there's this like massive pain point that everyone hates, how do I prove super quickly in that first session that, hey, look, our product's going to solve that pain point? Um, or if it's a pull, like how do I prove to you if I want to look better naked, like that idea, how do I prove to you that or, or give you some confidence that I'm going to deliver um, on that promise? Um, the other piece is the sort of below the line stuff, the more sort of subtle experience where there's an inertia, there's our existing sort of habits that lead us to sort of stay um, in the status quo. We've got kind of fears and anxieties about change, about what could go wrong, about like I might look, you know, kind of look stupid. And we also have these sort of hopes of like, hey, look, you know, I'd love to advance my career or I'd love to sort of look like I know what I'm doing. And by sort of really understanding and thinking about those sort of concerns and hopes, you can really help people move through the process. And the way I'd encourage people to think about this is sort of focus on the big stuff. So rather than necessarily listing like, you know, here's all the things that someone could be afraid about, focus on the stuff that comes up really prominently. And so, you know, my favorite example from this is from a time at SurveyMonkey. So when people, you know, go to create surveys, most people are kind of vaguely aware that there's like a right way to create a survey. And pretty much everyone is also aware that they do not know what that right way is. And so providing guidance and reassurance to someone that, like, hey, this is a good survey. This is going to get you kind of good results. You're doing well. These are great questions. That's actually super important because in the minds of, you know, kind of many survey creators, like that's a really big concern. They're like, I'm going to put all this effort into sending the survey, but um, it may not deliver the results that I want. Certainly, there's a range of other things that you could imagine that someone you know, might be concerned about or hopeful about, but that was really number one for surveys, and that, and that was a huge part of it. You know, for Intercom, that's, it's not quite the same. You know, it's sort of similar in that being like a new sort of product. A lot of people aren't really quite sure how to use it. Like, they think the chat thing's cool, but a little bit like, you know, how do I set this up in a really effective way? And so providing that reassurance can be helpful, but it's, I wouldn't over-index on that. I'd really focus on like, what are the big things, you know, the fears or concerns, the stuff that people actively will mention to you in user interviews. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I, I see those forces playing and, you know, you want to definitely reassure people in terms of what they're anxious about or what they might be you know, afraid of for. I want to, you know, one of the things about the jobs to be done is that there are certain products that can have multiple jobs to be done. And I've, I've been asked this question once where like, our product's a database. Anybody can use database for everything. So how do I know where to focus my product onboarding for, which particular jobs have you done? And I think that kind of relates to, to gym as well. Like there could be many reasons why people might want to sign up for the gym. One of, like you said, one of them could be to look good. Maybe there's a bodybuilder. They want to you know, get buff and actually compete. Yeah. Or you know, there's a bunch of other reasons like what do you do when there is multiple jobs to be done and do you focus on just one or multiple ones? Like what would your suggestion be for that? Yeah. So I think it sort of depends on, you know, where you're at as a company. Like if you're a very sort of small company, then, then, you know, trying out a lot of these different jobs, like seeing, you know, who you can appeal to is kind of important. And in that case, you know, you may want to offer a split experience. So, you know, for intercom, we you know have a little bit of this right people use it for customer support they use it for customer you know engagement including things like onboarding and they'll use this for lead gen so like you know kind of sales and and that sort of stuff and so we really early on try and split people out and try and be clear on hey look which of these three things are you coming from and even within that 
there will be kind of different people involved in the onboarding process. If you're a large and complex product like us, there's multiple people involved. If you think about just the sales use case, you've got the sales leader who wants to sort of, is really concerned about, will this deliver ROI? You've got probably someone that's responsible for lead gen that just wants to know, like, will this increase my lead numbers? And you've got the actual salespeople who want not just leads, but they want like high quality leads. And so every person within that has like a slightly different sort of set of interests and so would ideally have a slightly different kind of experience. And so normally it won't be the sales leader or a sales person that's sitting into ComArp. It's likely a demand gen person. And so we can kind of target the experience for that person. But when they invite other people, when they invite their salespeople, then as opposed to saying, hey, we're going to, you know, help you hit your leads number, we're really focused on, hey, Intercom's the place for quality leads and here's how you can close deals because that's what they, you know, are most concerned about. The other side of this is that it's really important to focus. And so even if you think about the gyms example, it's pretty rare, you know, like maybe this was true sort of 50 years ago, but it's pretty rare that gyms cater to both the sort of fun, breezy, pumping millennial workout and like the sort of hardcore bodybuilder or the like really extreme strength sports athlete stuff. Like they tend to be different kind of offerings. And certainly with a database, there's like a million databases out there. And so your database, you know, typically isn't like, hey, it's a place to store information because there's a million ways to do that. You could write it down in like a really big, you know, Google sheet. Likely there's some sort of benefit. Hey, this thing is like super fast on read or like this, you know, kind of scales instantly. It's kind of really good for web scale or like there'll be some kind of really clear propositions. Again, some customer pain that your database is solving. Hopefully it's not just you haven't just decided to write your, write your own data store for the fun of it. And even if you have, like figure out why this is sort of better and really pitch into that kind of benefit and improve, like help people understand early on, hey, you know, here's how fast this kind of you know, database can be on, right? It makes a lot of sense. So you're like now thinking about positioning and messaging and how value and helping people realize that value as quickly as possible is important, which kind of leads me to the question about this concept called the aha moment. Everybody talks about it when they talk about onboarding. I'm particularly curious about Intercom where you talked about, I think, three or four use cases for Intercom, uh, you know, lead gen, customer engagement, there could be support. Do you have like separate aha moments for those separate jobs to be done? Or like, do you have one core key product action for all three? Yeah, each of those does tend to be a little bit different. But in general, like I think the aha moment is really when you sort of first realize in a really visceral way, like the true sort of benefit of the product. And so it's typically easy to think about for, you know, kind of consumer products. So if you think of kind of Uber, that first ride, like it's just, it's sort of amazing. And if you sort of recall back to the first time you took a ride sharing product, like it just shows up out of nowhere. It doesn't have like taxi on, it looks like a private car. And then you just like kind of get out and it, it just, it's just paid for. Like, like, like that's, it's really magical and it really kind of grabs you, you know, kind of similarly for Intercom, the experience of like talking with customers on your website or being able to see who those customers are and um, really does open people's eyes to like, oh, I could create a brand new experience with something like this. So, oh, wow, I can like, you know, send someone a message in the product as well as an email and then I can create this kind of omni-channel type experience. Like those tend to be the moments that, that, that you know, they link back to like, hey, why is my product really differentiated? Or, you know, how, how can I kind of see, ah, yes, this, this really does do that piece. And so, again, I wouldn't, you know, overthink it too much. Like often... 
the best sort of aha moments will be the things that when you do a bit of numerical analysis also tend to be like, you know, highly correlated with activation and retention. And, you know, they intuitively will make a lot of sense to you that, you know, these are the kind of moments that really make our product different. And, you know, when you talk to customers, they'll sort of remember that that moment really made them or help convince them that this thing was going to kind of make a difference. Kind of leads to another question I had about when is the initial onboarding done? And some people said it's when people made a payment. I talked to Eric Keating, the VP of marketing at AppQC. He said it's really never done. <laughs> like you can always onboard into the next one. But I'm curious more for that initial onboarding for first-time users. How do you know that the onboarding team has done a good job of uh, successfully onboarding a first-time user? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm definitely in the like it's never done camp. So rather than you know onboarding being a the first session or sort of something like that. What you're trying to do, at least in a theoretical sense, what you want is someone to be getting as much value as they possibly can out of your product. And so, you know, if you sat down with them, there's, you know, you wouldn't be able to say, there's no case in which you'd be able to say, oh, you should maybe do this. Or if you tried that, or hey, if you're using this feature, you get like kind of, you know, much more benefit. Like for what they want it for, the product is doing everything it kind of can, right? Like that's when kind of onboarding, I would say, is done um, rather than, you know, being one specific kind of event. Because I think that the, uh, if you focus on like a time period or an event or kind of things like that, it's just very rare that reality works out like that. Like typically it's based more on like what they've done versus, you know, any amount of time or sort of things like that. Equally, if we say things like, oh, we'd like to get more customers to use this particular feature. Well, it's almost certain that like, it's not going to be useful for every particular customer. And so it may be that you want to sort of understand it and know that it's there, but like, it may not be a fit for every one of your customers. And so, yeah, I'd really focus on like, hey, is everyone, you know, getting the most they can out of the product? And one way to kind of practically measure that is, you know, if you talk to customers that have churned or if you just talk to customers, you know, uh, current customers in the course of things, like, do they seem to be kind of using the product like pretty much as extensively as they possibly could, you know, given how important it is to them? Like some customers will say, well, we'd sort of theoretically like to set our product to us, but like it's clearly not a priority and they just haven't got around to it. Like that, that's fine actually because, you know, they just haven't you know, chosen to invest the time. But what you want is, is, yeah, customers kind of using the product as, as, as much as they possibly can. And so you'll tend to pick up a sense of that as you sort of talk to customers or look at churn surveys that like, hey, there's this, this kind of persistent blind spot. And so maybe we want to kind of think about some sort of onboarding or engagement work to kind of help people understand the utility of this particular part of the product. Really fascinating. That definitely makes a lot of sense. How does uh, this piece relate to, you know, I'm guessing it's like closely related to product adoption where, you know, they're using the product extensively and now they've kind of embraced it enough that they're using it. It's a choice of tool or choice of product that they use now for that particular job to be done. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. What you want is for, you know, the role of onboarding is kind of getting someone from, you know, essentially the marketing side to that like kind of super advanced or actually not a super advanced power user, but to, to someone who's using it as fully as they can right now. And perhaps a helpful way to think about it is maybe you could draw the line between onboarding and like kind of upselling and engagement as 
when the customer says, oh yeah, I'm now doing the thing that I came here for, right? And so likely, you know, many products will land and expand. And so the initial focus should be, you promised all the stuff on the website. I said, that looks good. I signed up. Maybe I gave you my money or I gave you my time through a trial. You know, have I got to a point where I go, yeah, I totally got that thing. I got those better customer relationships that you promised me at the start. And then we can start to have a conversation about, well, here's some other stuff we can help you with. And I think that's actually a common mistake that many companies will make. They'll sort of, hey, now that you're here, let's try and upsell you and move you over to this or that, which just feels like very, very aggressive and sort of early on. And, you know, customers, you know, quite reasonably aren't, you know, always sort of open to that conversation. But if you can prove that you're really invested in that success, it's like, hey, you came to us, you know, for better customer engagement or a, um, a much easier, more modern support system. I've proven that to you, right? We've been really focused on that. Now, could we have a conversation about your in-product onboarding or could we have a conversation about your lead gen? That's absolutely something that's completely appropriate, right? Like if you think of our conversation here, you said, hey, I'd love to have a conversation about onboarding. If I were to say, okay, that's great. Well, let's actually do a bunch of other podcasts as well. And by the way, you know, here's some other stuff. You're like, hey man, like let's have the first conversation, you know, deliver some value there. And then we can kind of have that conversation. Like it's a very normal part of kind of human interaction. And I think it, you know, thinking about products in, in that way as well is going to be beneficial. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I really love how you put it there. I want to start wrapping up and we've talked about so many things about onboarding. If you can just give one or two pieces of advice that you want to leave to product-led leaders, product-led marketers or, or product professionals here on, on the summit and also on the podcast, what would be like just one or two pieces of advice you'd like to give? And it could be anything that we've talked about right now or anything new that you haven't mentioned yet. I think there's two parts. I think like the first part that that like kind of jumps up is what we were talking about before and, and we've talked actually really through this sort of podcast has been getting really clear on like what is the job that your product does, right? Like what is the equivalent of, you know, it's not about bicep curls, it's about looking better naked or it's about feeling good climbing the stairs. What is your product's equivalent of that and getting really clear on that and orienting your onboarding towards doing that thing, right? Like, and, you know, because your the introduction to your product looks really different. You know, typically when you focus on that. You know, from our example, if you know we were trying to prove that like the gym is going to help you feel healthy, the first user experience is going to look completely different to if it's like, hey, I'm going to show you how to use a bunch of equipment. So being clear on that can help kind of rally the whole team. You define. Um, success differently, you think about it differently, you're asking different kind of questions of your end customers and and just the clarity of that can kind of help a huge amount. The other part, and this is sort of relevant for some products but not for others, but I think it's a really underexplored sort of, you know, thing in onboarding is thinking about kind of like non-product tasks and the sort of, to go back to this poor old uh, beaten gym analogy is Often in the gym, they might say, well, we're providing equipment. Like you need to figure out your own, you know, sort of workout, right? So there's the rowing machine. There's the other machine, you know, figure it out. But the gap for customers is often like, yeah, but what am I supposed to do? Like how many, how much rowing and how many pull-ups and like, like, you know, talk to me about that, right? Where many gyms would sit back and go, well, that's not really our space. Like you need to figure it out yourself. And products do the same thing. So think of SurveyMonkey, right? We provide all the survey tools and here's this sort of question, this sort of question, here's the ways you can send it. And they're like, well, but what should I write in my questions? And we're like, oh, well, that's not really our job. That, that's kind of on you. 
you know, for intercom, we're like, you can here's all these different ways you can create the customer experience. And I kind of say, but yeah, yeah, but like what what is a great customer experience? What kind of messages, you know, sort of should I send? And typically you can do really well by leaning into that, like what I think of as like non-product tasks, like help people if there's a gap that they need to fill with content, whether that content's a gym program or like a sort of an, an onboarding flow or a kind of survey questions, help them fill that content. And that may, you know, be like writing a guide, you know, it may be building more UI, it may not be, but typically that's the stuff, you know, that's going to lead to really, you know, kind of big benefits and is often difficult and shied away from because it just seems, it seems hard. We've got to talk to customers and we have to think hard about it, you know, versus just running another A-B test. But like typically that's the stuff that's going to make a really, really meaningful difference because it directly relates to helping people doing the thing that they came to you for in the first place, which is sort of the theme of what we're talking about, right? Know what people are coming to you for and then, you know, like really what are they coming to you for? And then orient your onboarding towards helping them do that or proving that like over time you are going to help them do that. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And one final question, where can people find out more about your work online? And, you know, people are interested about Intercom. How can people find out about Intercom? Of course. Well, Intercom, we have a blog, intercom.com forward slash blog. Um, I've written a bunch of stuff over there. I'm on Twitter at Robbie Digi, R-O-B-B-I-E-D-I-G-I. Um, would love to kind of um, hear comments and questions. And Intercom's hiring a bunch as well at the moment. So if you'd like to come and work with me, um, especially in uh, Dublin or London, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Robbie. I appreciate it. This has been great. Thanks for the time, our chance to chat.